0: The following audio is from Maple City Baptist Church in Chatham, Ontario. For more information about Maple City, please visit us online at maplecitybaptistchurch.com. Our Father, we've gathered together today uh, to adore you, to worship you, um, to learn from your word. And God, I pray that... As we celebrate the Lord's Supper, as we celebrate the communion service that you have invited us to, that it will be a time where we are united together as brothers and sisters in Christ, that it will be a time that we remember the hope that we have in Jesus Christ, that because of what he accomplished in our place, we will be with you forever, that all of our guilt, all of our sinfulness was laid on his shoulders And God, help us to remember that and then help us to examine ourselves in light of that. Lord, I pray that your spirit would work um, through your word, through the words that are spoken today. God, help me to get out of the way. And Lord, I pray that, that Christ is lifted up and that he is glorified. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. We will be celebrating the Lord's Supper today as a church family. And we believe, and we say this often, that this is one of the greatest Traditions, if not the greatest tradition that our church takes part in on a regular basis. However, I think it's fair to say that if it wasn't given any explanation at all, this service would seem quite strange. If we had a man walk in and he, he just came from Mars, really no idea what goes on here on earth, and he walked into this service and he saw a group of men come to the front and take some prepared little bits of unleavened bread, and then pass them to every person. And every person would sit there in a somber way and look and hold on to this bread. And then, then they'd come back and they'd assemble at the front and one person would pray and, and then everybody in unison would eat that bread together. I think they'd think we're nuts. What is going on with these people? Why would they do this? And if they didn't think we were nuts yet, I think they'd be sure of it when we got to the juice. What's the deal with this tiny little cup of juice that everybody's just going to hold and, and look at and think about? And then at the end of you know somebody else praying, we all just drink the, the juice together. What is that? What are these what is people here for today? And yet, though they might think we have drunken the Kool-Aid, we would assert with R.C. Sproul that the communion service is a vital part of the worship of God and the nourishment of the Christian life. That the communion service, as David Dockery said, is the highest form of corporate Christian worship. It's the Lord's Supper. We believe that. We say that often, but the question is why? Why is the Lord's Supper so special? Is it the little pieces of bread? Is it the juice? And we understand it's not those things. It's not... It's not just the parts that make up the Lord's Supper. It's not just the fact that we've done this for 2,000 years as a universal body of Christ. But it's that the Lord's Supper points to something. It's a glorious service because of what it stands for. What it brings to our mind. What it causes us to remember. Because of the one who spilt his blood so that we could be invited to it. The Lord's Supper is a sign of the promise of God, the covenant of grace that God made with us when he sent his son to bear our sin on the cross. Spencer, my son, is eight years old, and I coach his soccer team. And on Tuesday night, they played a a game, and I don't know if you remember Tuesday night. It was kind of like a lot of nights this past week. It poured rain, just Dumped buckets of rain, and so we got through the first half unscathed, and then the second half starts, and all of a sudden it starts raining a little bit and uh somehow somehow it seems like like half the people in the stands pull out their umbrella they 've got their umbrella, and you know and they 're safe from the the rain. How do you people know to bring an umbrella that 's what I want to know i didn't have an umbrella, I never have an umbrella and and so i 'm sitting there getting completely drenched and I'm literally like wringing out my shirt and as I'm wringing out my shirt, one of the parents comes over and stands beside me with an umbrella and I'm thinking, it's a little late for that, right? <laughs> but there was kind of them. And so here I'm sitting at the sides and it's cold, it's soaking wet and the only thing warming my heart a little bit is that we're ahead 6-1. And then I looked behind me, and I saw in the distance this beautiful rainbow. Beautiful rainbow. And when I see something as beautiful and as kind of strange as a rainbow, it makes me wonder why. You know, what's, what's it, how, how does that happen? Like, how is it possible that all of a sudden in the sky all of us see... These colors that line up so perfectly and make a perfect arch across the sky. And you probably learned the answer in elementary school. You probably learned that that white light is actually made up of all different kinds of light and that when the light goes into the raindrop, it gets refracted and sent out at different angles and and that we see each angle, each light separated now a little bit differently. I I don't know if you, I probably made it worse. Um, But there is a scientific explanation for what happens. But it's still, it's still crazy. It's still amazing. It, it's still nuts. And what's more amazing and spectacular than the rainbow itself is what it signifies. The rainbow signifies that God will show mercy and grace to mankind. Back in Genesis chapter 9, verse 11, before that, God has sent a flood to destroy mankind, and, and Noah and his family have been saved on the ark. And he says to Noah in Genesis 9, chapter 11, I will establish my covenant with you. Neither shall all flesh be cut off any more by waters of the flood. Neither shall be any more a flood to destroy the earth. So he says, I'm going to make a promise to you, Noah, a promise to you and to all future generations that I will never destroy the earth by flood again. Genesis 9, verse 12, God said, This is the token, or the sign, Of the covenant which I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for perpetual generations. I do set a bow in the cloud, and it shall be for a token of the covenant between me and the earth. And the bow shall be in the cloud, and I will look upon it that I may remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is upon the earth. So God said, I will make a promise. The promise is I will never destroy the earth again. And when you hear that promise, you might think, That seems unnecessary. Some of us look at the promise of God that he's not going to destroy the earth by flood and we think, man, how did he do it in the first place? Why would he do such a thing to such wonderful people? And that's that's the problem, right? We don't understand our sinful natures. This promise that God made is, is an amazing promise of grace and mercy. When we understand the sinfulness of mankind, that we are... Human beings created in the image of God, but we constantly break his law. We constantly rebel. We constantly want to lift ourselves up as our own gods. When we understand ourselves, and we know that everybody in this room is built the same way, and everybody in this earth is built the same way, that we are all creatures of God rebelling from him, it might make more sense that this is a promise of grace, a promise of mercy. What he's saying is, I will not give you what you deserve. I will not pour the flood upon mankind, though it's well deserved. I will show grace and mercy. And so, as I sat there, drenched, cold, and a little bit miserable, I saw the rainbow and I thought, ah, God's mercy. It was a sign. Right? It reminded me that God is gracious, and not just that he's gracious and that he won't send a flood, but it, it reminded me of the character of God, that, that he doesn't punish me the way that my sins demand that I'm punished, the way that I deserve to be punished. He's shown grace and mercy to me. And if we were, had the time today to walk through the Old Testament, we'd find that God made a lot of promises. He made a lot of covenants with his people. And as he made those covenants, he also gave with them a sign. And the sign was there to remind them of what promise had been made, what the promise means for them. To Adam, he gave the sign of a son, to Noah, the rainbow, to Abraham, circumcision, to Moses, the Sabbath day, to David, an eternal throne. In each of these cases, God makes a covenant with his people, he makes a promise that he is going to keep, and he puts some kind of re- remembrance. In their lives. Something that will perpetually bring them back to the promise that he had made to them. Now, we might ask the question, well, why? If God made these promises and he will keep them, why do we need to be reminded so often? And the answer is really simple. Because we forget. We often forget. We so often forget the wonderful, amazing promises of God. We forget the significance of these promises and the way that they ought to be transforming our lives daily. Back in June, we celebrated the Lord's Supper as a church family. We did last month too, but I was speaking back in June. And we looked at God's promise to make a better promise in the book of Jeremiah. So Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31 says, Behold, The days come, says the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah. Hey, there's a day coming that I'm going to make a new promise. I've made all these promises in the past. They're all leading toward this new and better promise. Verse 33 says, This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my law in their inward parts. I will write it on their hearts and will be their God And they shall be my people, and they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, saith the Lord. And then get this last part, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. The promises that God had made in the Old Testament, at least the Mosaic Covenant, it was a conditional covenant. God said, I will bless you if you keep the law. I will bless you if you live the way that I want you to live, but there will be punishment for not keeping the law. And he says, now, I will make a new covenant. And it's not a covenant that's going to require you to live a certain way and do all these certain things, and if you're, if you're perfect, if you're good enough... I'll bless you. This covenant is one where we would be the people of God and he would be our God and we would know him and be in fellowship with him. Not because I'm good, but because he would forgive my iniquity. Because he would remember my sin no more. Pastor mentioned last week that in the book of Hebrews, the author is writing to a group of Jewish people who are saved, but they're tempted to return to their former lives. They're tempted to uh, give up the salvation because it's costing too much and go back to the old sacramental system. And in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 6, he's trying to say Jesus is better than the old covenant. Right, This new promise is so much better that all those things were a shadow of this that would come. He says in verse 6, But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry By how much also he is the mediator of a better covenant, which was established on better promises. And then the author of Hebrews goes on to quote the passage we just read from Jeremiah. That Jesus would come, that somehow the high priest is the one that would mediate this new covenant where our sins could be forgiven and we could be in relationship with God and we could know God even though we didn't do anything to deserve it. Jesus is the mediator. He is the one that's the go-between between God and man. God is, is holy and righteous and just. He's the judge. He must, as a good, just judge, punish sin. And Jesus comes and he takes the punishment that we deserve. How do you fix that problem, right? It's a serious problem if you're God. How do you bring, bring sinners back in right relationship with you without punishing them the way that, that you promised you would, the way that their sin deserves? God is a good judge. He must punish sin. And so Jesus comes, he mediates this new covenant by spilling his blood in our place. By taking the punishment we deserved so that that God could be just and the justifier of those who believe in Jesus. Amen. So, turn your Bibles to John chapter 3, starting at verse 14 we are going to see what it was that Jesus did to mediate this new covenant. These are very familiar verses. John chapter 3, verse 14 says, Moses, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He that believes on him is not condemned, but he that believes not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. How did God accomplish this feat? How did God bring sinners into right relationship with him once again and forgive their sin? Well, first of all, John says that the Son of Man would be lifted up. And when we hear about someone to be lifted up, I think our first thought is exalted. Right? That they will be brought high in front of people so that they can look at him and adore him. But that's not what this is talking about here. In John chapter 12, verse 32, it said, And I, this is Jesus speaking, said, And I... If I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. And I think, oh, he must be talking about his resurrection, his ascension. When he's lifted up and he's glorified, he will draw people to him. But he goes on to say in verse 33, This he said, signifying what death he should die. Jesus being lifted up in John chapter 3 and in John chapter 12 is referring to him being lifted up on the cross. Jesus during his entire ministry, knew exactly where he was headed. He knew why he had come. He'd come to seek and to save that which was lost, and and in his mission, it required a sacrifice. A while later, the Jewish leaders are dragging the already beaten body of Jesus before Pilate to be crucified. Pilate gave them another option. Hey, if you want this man dead, if you want him judged, if you think he's a blasphemer, Why don't you judge him according to your law? Why don't you stone him? And they have this quick answer, right? Well, it's not lawful for us to put any man to death. Okay, but that didn't stop you from killing Stephen later on. And this is Pilate giving you the green light. Pilate saying, if you want to, you take him and you stone him. I don't need to be a part of it. They say, no, we we don't want to do that. And so then verse 32 The reason that all that happened and the reason that Jesus was crucified on a Roman cross instead of being stoned was that the saying of Jesus might be fulfilled, which he spake, signifying what death he should die. Jesus had to die on the cross. Why? Because he had to be lifted up, as he said. Jesus would be lifted up on a Roman cross. He would be stripped naked, scourged, mocked, beaten, spit upon, humiliated. He would be put a crown of thorns on his head. He'd put a robe on his back, give him a scepter, laugh at him. He would be forced to carry his own cross up a hill. He would be nailed to that cross and then dropped into a hole. And for six hours, he was lifted up. The strangest thing happened while Jesus was hanging on that cross. He's, he's there dying as a criminal. Between two thieves, two murderers, I mean, two really bad guys. And as he is dying on a cross as a criminal, after of being humiliated and beaten so much so that you couldn't tell who he was anymore. His, his visage was so marred that you couldn't see who this man was anymore. This is the guy hanging on the cross. And yet... One of the two criminals professes faith in him. Lord, remember, this, remember me this day when you come into your kingdom. Do you know what happened there? When Jesus was lifted up, he began drawing men to himself. And that day, that criminal, that one who had done nothing good his entire life, who deserved to be crucified, spent the afternoon with Jesus in paradise. How is that possible? It's possible because this is what happens with the new covenant. This is the promise of grace. That your sins will be forgiven even though you don't deserve it. Three days passed. The one who is lifted up has now died. And he's risen again from the grave. The disciples went out with the message of the Messiah, who was lifted up to die as a criminal, but that he died for the sins of all men and women. He died to mediate the new covenant through his blood, to make the forgiveness of sins and reconciliation with God possible for sinful people like you and me. Why did Jesus die? John answers that question when he says the world was already condemned. There is none righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. All are guilty under the crushing weight of God's law. And so in this state that we were in, John says God so loved the world that he gave his son." And all that's required of us to be saved is to believe in the work that Jesus accomplished for us on the cross. Repentance, turn from your sin, and faith. Trust in Christ as your Savior. And with this covenant, with this glorious promise of grace, he gave us two signs. He gave us a sign of baptism, which points to the gospel, We're dead with Christ and risen again to new life. And he gave us the Lord's Supper. God meant baptism to be something that we did one time. It's not something we do on a regular basis. It's not something that it's expected you do. Now, I know a lot of you have broken that rule. (laughs) I broke the rule. Uh, I was baptized as a baby in a Catholic church and then uh, as a 16-year-old, as a believer in Christ. But baptism was... For a saved person to signify that, they'd, that they had trusted Christ as their Savior, and they now wanted to identify themselves with Christ. Right? Jesus' blood was shed for them, they'd accepted his sacrifice, and now they were professing their faith to the world around them. But the Lord's Supper is something we do not just once. If you're in our church for a long period of time, and you have been saved at a fairly young age, it's very possible that before you die you will celebrate the Lord's Supper 600 times. If you're in a church that celebrates the Lord's Supper every week, which many do, it'd be 2,500 times throughout your lifetime. Now, there's, there's a wonderful blessing to that, and there's a possible problem with it. The wonderful blessing is that if we understand what this, this table, this um, ceremony, this service signifies, and that we allow it to do what God designed it to do in our lives, and it brings us back into fellowship with one another. It, it, it focuses our minds on the things that are most important. It helps us to examine ourselves in light of the gospel. It, it reminds us of the hope that we have. The Lord's Supper does so many wonderful things if we're thinking the way we should. But the problem with doing it 600 or 2,500 times is that it can become stale. can become old, taken for granted. Something that we've done so many times and we don't think much about. And so, I want to remind you this morning that the Lord's Supper is a sign that was given by God. A sign of the promise of grace that he's given to us in the shed blood of his Son. That it's an ongoing physical reminder of the greatest event that has ever happened that changed the course of our eternal lives. Taking the Lord's Supper doesn't make you a Christian. It's not like all of a sudden you've got grace bestowed on you because you had a little piece of bread and a little drink of juice. doesn't. Wearing this ring, it doesn't make me married to Tara. If I work really hard, I can get it off. Look it. I'm still married to Tara. I could give it to anybody in this room. They could put it on. And guess what? They would not be married to Tara. Otherwise, I'd have to kill them. (laughs) But the ring, it's just this tiny little reminder when I look down on it that it signifies the love that she's shown to me and the love that I have for her. I remember being in front of a church, and I remember saying the vows. I remember her passing me the ring. And I remember now, throughout the course of the last 15 years of my life, of events happening where I, I held her hand and my ring was there, or I held our baby, and it's just been a it's been with me. It's been this sign that I've been, enjoyed being a part of my life for a long time. It doesn't make me married to Tara, but man, it's a wonderful reminder. The Lord's Supper, it is just this glorious reminder that we are in Jesus Christ. We who are saved have an eternal hope that can never be taken away. I was wet and cold, and I looked back and I just saw this rainbow. And it was just this small reminder of God's mercy and grace. And if that's true for the Noahic covenant so long ago that still can remind us and and warm our hearts, and how much more should it be true for this new and better covenant, this sign that we've been given today, that we get to get together and remember that the Son of God came to the earth because God loved us so much that he wanted that relationship with us. He desired for us to be reconciled back to him. And so Jesus spilt his blood for me. I don't deserve that. You don't deserve that. But God loved us that much that he did that. And this is a reminder to us of the love that God showed. So in light of that, here's what we do at the Lord's Supper. We are united together as a family of believers, brothers and sisters in Christ, with God as our Father. Knowing that that this relationship that we have with brothers and sisters is an eternal relationship because God is our eternal God together. We all stand together at the foot of the cross. Second thing we do is we remember the sacrifice. Not just that it happened, not just that at one point in history Jesus died, but we remember the cost, remember the agony the pain that our Savior went through. There was a cost to the love and the grace that God showed us. So we remember that. We hope. We have hope that this life is not all that there is, that he is coming again, that I will be in heaven with him forever. It's a celebration because we can hope and we examine. We look at our lives in light of the cross, in light of the promises that were given. Say, Lord, am I living the way that I ought to live as a child of God? Am I pleasing you as well as I can? Nobody's perfect and nobody's saying you must be. What we are saying is, this is meant to bring before our eyes a sacrifice that was so great, it cost God his life. And if he died for me, I should live for him. And so we examine our lives in light of that. If we do these things, we're united together, we remember the sacrifice, we hope for his coming, and for eternal life, and we examine ourselves, then we've done what God designed for us to do here today. And if you think about nothing and you've fallen asleep, then nothing happens. And so if you have these two options, do what the Lord designed for this service to do in your life, or do nothing, I would choose to to think about what God has done for you. Think about the promise of grace that has been given to each of us. Let's pray.